Exodus chapter 5, let's pray and we'll get right into it. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that every man and every woman in this room, our prayer would be for you to place us through the power of your spirit on the anvil of your word and allow our preconceptions and our notions and our opinions be smashed by your truth. Every one of us in this room, we're going to get it wrong. Oh, there's a way that seems right to man, but that path leads to destruction. Lord God, you have given your wisdom to us, your knowledge to us, your understanding to us. Father, may we take this opportunity to soak it in like a sponge, change us and transform us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. First service, I went over. I know it's Mother's Day. I don't want to do that. So second service, I changed things up. And from verse 4 to verse 20, I just uh, put it all together. We didn't even read it. I just, I just I gave a few points that I wanted to point out. We still were seven or eight minutes over. I'm going to try to do better this time, but this is so important. I mean, we, Dan, I love you, we see in this first altercation between Moses and the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, who they believed was God. They, they deified their leaders in Egypt. They treated him as if he was God. His word was as if God was speaking. This is the first altercation between Moses and Pharaoh. And we see two very different kinds of people with two very different ideologies about life. And these same things can be seen today in our world. And my prayer is I unpack it so well so that God's people will not be deceived or ignorant of what it looks like to be led by the Spirit of God versus the Spirit of this world. Because that's what we see in Moses and Pharaoh. And there are clear signs. That we can, we can identify as we hear all the voices and all the experts and, uh, and all the people saying, look at me and follow me and I know the way. There are many false Christs as we'll read uh, from some New Testament scripture in a moment. Many people coming to say, I know the way, but we've got to listen carefully. And there are clues in this text that help us listen carefully. That we will not, you know, the Bible says it's going to get so dark towards the end that even the, if God didn't shorten the time, even the elect would be, dis that's, how, that's how Satan works and, and his deception is, I mean, look at Eve and the guard, his deception is so sneaky. But we've got it. God has given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And that's what I want for us. Notice at the end of chapter four, we won't read it. But chapter 4 ended with a big celebration, right? Moses and Aaron went and did what they were supposed to do. They went, there were three different groups that they had to convince that God had sent them and that it was time for the, the people to be delivered. They had to convince the elders of Israel. Now those elders aren't the same elder we read about in the New Testament. They were, the word in Hebrew just simply means aged man or old man. As, as fathers died, their firstborns would take over and, and they would run the household and be in charge of the household. And some would be in charge of entire tribes of households. So the oldest men in that, they were the elders. So Moses and Aaron had to go and convince the elders that God had spoken. 
Then they had to convince all of Israel that God had spoken. Then they had to go to Pharaoh and convince the Egyptians that the God of the Hebrews had spoken. So chapter 4 ends with Moses going to the elders and to all of Israel and performing the signs that God commanded him to perform. And the Bible says at the end of chapter 4, all Israel believed. Right. So we're, we're, on, we're on a mountaintop. God's at work. He told us what to do, and we did it, and praise God, praise his name. But where we're going to get to by the end of chapter 5, we don't end on a mountaintop today. That was last week. Today we end in a valley of Moses perplexed, not understanding what's happening. God doesn't seem to be doing what he said he was going to do. And Moses is angry with God. And I want you to see in this also, we're going to get into more of Moses and, uh, uh, and Pharaoh and the differences between the two. But don't miss in this sermon. In Christian life, there are victories and there are what seems to be defeats, even though they're really not defeats at all. They're simply momentary afflictions and sufferings and hardships that we must endure for us to become the people that God wants us to be for the next victory around the corner. Every time the sun goes down in the darkest of night, it seems like the night is going to stay forever, but the sun always comes up in the morning, amen? So we're not going to end in defeat, even though Moses ends there today. We're going to see God's work in Moses for what is to come. Big success, moving into chapter 5 and verse 1. After, after everyone believes, everybody's on board, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now real quick, turn back to chapter 3 and verse 18. Because let's go back to the original instructions of God to Moses to see what's going on here in this first verse of chapter 5. God's word to Moses said, They will listen to your voice, Israel, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. Underline that. You and the elders shall go to the king and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, underline that, has met with us. And now, little kid was at a magic show and the magician was doing his work. And he called a kid out and he was like, Give me a magic word. And he was expecting abracadabra or open sesame, what he said. Instead, God was, please. Because <laughs> we all know, we've seen Sesame Street, right? The magic word is please. God asks Moses to say please to the most powerful man in Egypt. Let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness. Back to chapter 5. What's the first thing you see wrong? Where the elders go? Jewish tradition tells us that after all the people believed and the elders believed, that all the elders got behind Moses and Aaron and, and they were all going together to Pharaoh. But as they got closer to the palace, first one by one, the elders begin to drop off. And then in pairs, two by two, they begin to drop off until Moses and Aaron end up at the palace and they turn around and they're completely by themselves. How many of you know it is easy in a room filled 
with other men and women who love Jesus. It's easy to love Jesus in this room. Amen? It is easy uh, to, to love Jesus when you are in a crowd of people that love Jesus. Maybe, maybe in your family, everyone is a Christian. It's easy to have uh, conversations about current events or anything else when everybody at the table loves Jesus and Scripture is their foundation. It's easy to have conversation. It's easy to be bold. It's easy to say what's really in your heart in those moments. It's much harder. I mean, I know everyone in this room. It's sometime in the last 15 years, there's been a president that has irked you. I'm being real safe. <laughs> it's Mother's Day. Can't get, can't get too far down a rabbit hole. And every one of us have sat on our couches watching an inaugural address or some speech. And we have had the thought, man, if I could just have five minutes with that guy, I would wring his neck. And I would set him straight. We've all done that. But it's different in our living room than it is if we actually had an invitation to come and sit down face to face and you're walking through Marble City itself, Washington, D.C., that was modeled after Rome and which was modeled after Greece and all the statues and all the monuments and all of a sudden the weight of the power and the authority of the federal government comes into purview and the intimidation begins to weigh. I've seen lots of men who are strong in private who buckle under the pressure in public. It's harder when you're talking to people you disagree with. And as the elders of Israel got closer and closer, and I don't know if you've ever, uh, if you know anything about ancient Egypt, I went to the High Museum about 10 years ago, uh, and, and there was this big uh, Egyptian, you know, uh, special, special deal, and so we went, and man, the statue, I mean, it was just, right, when you're moving into the center of power of the biggest, largest nation on the planet at that time, and you're fixing to have an audience with a king who their people believes is God, Here's the moral of the story. Sometimes we are called to stand alone. We may think we have friends and we may think we have support, but sometimes praise God for church, praise God for Christian families, praise God for Christian groups of friends and small groups, but sometimes God calls us to stand alone. And in those moments, we cannot shriek as the elders of Israel did, but like Moses and Aaron who look back and everybody's gone, they have to continue the mission that God has placed them on. We see this all through Scripture we see this in church history. There are, there are people whom God has used in history. Have you ever heard the statement, Athanasius contra mundum? It means Athanasius against the world. Athanasius was an early church leader who was fighting the Gnostic heretics and was fighting the Arian heretics who did not believe that Jesus was God. And he stood against them single-handedly. Do you know in his life, he was a bishop in Africa, in his life, he was exiled by a Roman emperor, by several Roman emperors, five different times for his standing on God's word instead of the, the social currents that were moving in different directions all around him. Hear me, church! Five times, 17 years of his life, he lived in exile 
But by God's grace, we go back to Athanasius and, and his opening the Bible and fiercely defending the deity of Christ, which is, I mean, if, if Jesus isn't God, we're all wasting our time. God became flesh. That's what the Bible says. We look back at because Athanasius stood when no one else was standing. Sound doctrine has been preserved that we adhere to and believe today. We've got Martin Luther's who saw the, the, the heretical teachings of the, the Catholic Church, which was the only church in, in, in Europe at the time. He saw how they were teaching things that weren't in the Bible. So he made a stand and he stood at the Diet of Worms and they told him, you have to recant. And he stood there and he said, I can't go against Scripture or against my conscience that has been bound by Scripture. I know my life is in your hands, but so help me, God. Here I stand. Don't think that you are exempt. Not even Christ was exempt. When he was arrested in the garden, his disciples fleed, except for Peter who followed at a far distance. When he was pronounced dead on the cross, they put that spear through his side. The disciples said, it's over. And they all left to go back home, back to fishing. Don't think that you are, there are going to be times where we praise God when we're together. But there are times we have to stand alone. We have to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? In a room where a pagan king of Babylon says, I've made my new God. Now everybody bow down to it when the worship plays. So the worship starts, or the, yeah, the music starts, and everybody in the room bows down. And in the back, there's three Hebrew boys with their arms crossed saying, no way, we're not going to bow. That's not true. Our God is true. These are the men and women that God is building through the centrality of his gospel and his word. Sometimes you have to stand alone. So Moses and Aaron here, elders not there. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. What did chapter 3 verse 18 tell him to say? The God of the Hebrews. Why? Because the Egyptians knew them as the Hebrews. Israel was a personal name that God gave first Jacob who wrestled with God in Genesis. But then he made, uh, he, he told Jacob, the entire, my entire people are going to be called Israel. Which isn't it, I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament. But Israel truly is a people who wrestles with God. It's like God knows the future or something way back in Genesis Thus says the God of Israel, let my, notice there's a word that's omitted from chapter 3. Let my, it's a command Moses is making of the most powerful man in the world. Let my people go and hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So there's some error here in Moses' part and in Aaron's part. Now here's the good news, guess what? Even though Moses and Aaron don't do everything perfectly, there's still a deliverance coming. Praise God. Listen, man, uh, the, a man stumbles seven times but gets up again. That's, that is the, the call of the righteous in Christ person. None of us are perfect. In fact, the church exists. We're the only organization on the face of the planet that gathers because of our imperfection for the glory of a salvation that is alien to us. Man, it's a beautiful thing to be part of the family of God, amen? 
And we see that in Moses and David and, and all the other people that God uses. Chapter, verse 2, chapter 2. Verse 2. Third time's a charm. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, you remember when Moses heard from God. His response was quite different than Pharaoh's. His actions afterward were quite different than the actions we're going to see Pharaoh uh, intake in the next few verses. Moses' response was, who am I? That I should be here, part of this, with my shoes off on this holy ground. Who am I that I should have anything to do with this? Pharaoh's response, very different. Who is Yahweh? I know nothing of Yahweh or of him being God of Israel. I'm in charge here. My way is the way things are going to happen. You come in demanding, let his people go. Uh, I'm in, we're going to do this my way, and I will not listen to this Yahweh in whom you speak of. You know, Satan is such a copycat. Everything God does, he copies. He's not a creator like God is. He's a created being, which is why he copies everything that God does. We have a book through God's Spirit. There's another book. Satan has a book, the, uh, the Satanic Verses. You know one of the Ten Commandments? Again, copying from God's book. One of the Ten Commandments of the Satanic Church, written by Anton LaVey. Do what thou wilt. Do whatever it is you want. There is the Spirit of God, and there is another Spirit who we see at work clearly in Pharaoh. Why does Pharaoh respond the way he does instead of the way Moses did? There's two things at work in every person who lives on planet Earth. Turn to Ephesians chapter, or I'm just going to put this on the board. Just write these down in your notes, in your study guides, or in your scripture journals. Ephesians 2, I want, I want to clearly show you these sides so that you can understand the actions of Pharaoh that come next. Now, if you don't know Ephesians, Ephesians is a great book, and chapter 2 is a powerhouse of salvation. We're not going to get to the, but God, rich in mercy. We're not going to get to that part. I just want to show you this front part to begin to build this understanding in your minds of why Pharaoh's different from Moses. And you, now this is Paul speaking to the church, Christians in Ephesus. You were, past tense, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were just like everybody else. You, we were all just like Pharaoh at one point. You were once dead in sin, which you were following, following what? Following the Spirit of God? No, following the course this world is on a course. It's always been on a course. There had to be a flood way back in Genesis because the course of this world is taking people in a different direction than the Spirit of God wants them to take. You were once just like them, dead in sin, following the course of this world. Well, who's leading the course of this world? Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit 
that is now, underline that word spirit. There is God's spirit and there is another spirit. Everything that doesn't come from God's spirit comes from another spirit. The spirit of Satan himself who is at work in the sons. Everyone right now who does not trust Jesus, who does not follow the will of God is unrighteous. And uh, they are, that spirit of Satan is at work in them right now. Why is the world so crazy? Why have we lost all common sense? This is why. Two paths. Led Zeppelin had it right. Yes, there are two paths you can. Okay, never mind. You're the only one that got that. So I'm either brain dead or just really tired. I'll go First John. I think we're going to go through six verses here. Beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. You're going to hear a lot of stuff. You've got to decide what's true and what's not true. And we have from God's spirit right here, his words of truth, his words of life. This book claims to be the perfect word inspired and breathed out by God himself. Everything else is a spirit from somewhere else. A spirit from what we just read in Ephesians. The prince of the power of the air who's moving the course of this world. But you got to, so we got to test the spirits for many false prophets, many false teachers, many false experts have gone out into the world. Verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. How do we know if someone is speaking from the Spirit of God? Are they making much of Jesus? Is Jesus their King and their Savior? Is Jesus God in human flesh who lived the perfect life and died in our place for our sin? Any spirit that glorifies and lifts up King Jesus, honors His name, wants to make His name great, that is a spirit from the Spirit of God. It's so simple. <laughs> Look, verse two, 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the... Who is Satan? You know, God became... There was an incarnation. Father sends the Son in human flesh. There's an incarnation that, that Satan is whittling out as he copies God. And the spirit of Antichrist... Is coming and is already here. Antichrist, regardless of what you believe about a personified man of lawlessness from 1 Thessalonians chapter, uh, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, understand the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of Satan, the one who is anti-Christ. There is Christ and what God is doing, and then there is one who wants to do everything else differently. Antichrist. His spirit has been at work and is at work right now. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Here's the good news. How can we be Moses and stand when no one wants to stand with us? Because he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. These spirits are not equal forces. One is far greater. The spirit of God is far greater than the spirit of Antichrist, the prince of the power of the air that runs the course of this world. 5 and 6. 
They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. You want to know who loves the the spirit of Antichrist? Those who follow the spirit of Antichrist. Those who follow the course of the world. Love other people like them who follow the course of this world. You know who loves the spirit of God? Look at verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. People with the Spirit of God inside them love other people with the Spirit of God inside of them. Uh, our spirits inter- intertwingle. Uh, intertwingle. Inter- <laughs> intertwine. <laughs> like, where they bear witness one to another. Well, that same glory in us knowing we're with brothers and sisters... Those who follow the spirit of the world, they have that same thing. They love each other. They support each other. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There is truth and there is error. Every decision, every amendment, every issue in the public square, there is truth and there is error. Both sides can never be right. One is right and one is wrong. The wrong one is following a spirit of error, while the one who is following truth, they are doing so by the Spirit of God. Now, three quick verses from Romans chapter 1. If we dared turn to Romans chapter 1, we would never get to the end of Exodus chapter 5. But three things I need you to see. Three things I want to prepare you for as we move into this Pharaoh... Who says, who is the Lord? He's going to meet the Lord. He's going to know who the Lord is. In fact, 15 times, starting in chapter 6, God reveals himself by saying, I am the Lord. Pharaoh's fixing to find out through plagues, through a dead child, through a drowned army. Who the Lord is and who is the true sovereign over all things. And I know some people are going to do it. They're going to come up and they're going to say, God is mean. Why would he do that to the poor (sighs) Pharaoh? I mean, did you cry when Hitler killed himself? If that was in fact true, he lived on in South America. (laughs) Chasing Hitler, I've seen it all. Nobody cries when the bad guy dies. I need you to see why the events that are coming are going to happen. There's a spirit of truth and there's a spirit of error. And God's wrath falls upon those who choose error over truth. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. What's the problem with Pharaoh and his, who is the Lord? I don't have to listen to him. He is suppressing the truth. See it in the text. All unrighteous. The wrath of God is being revealed because the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress. The truth is, the truth is out there. No X-Files fans? Come on. This is third service. You guys slept all morning. It's because you're up late watching vintage TV shows, right? Truth is out there. The invisible attributes of God can clearly be seen in creation. His common grace is present every day over all of humanity. Do you want to know why any nation still stands today? Grace 
of God. Common grace that he gives all humanity. But what do people do? Why are they without excuse? Because they suppress the truth. And so you know what God does? Look at verse 28. So God gives them over. What does God do? He gives, because they suppress the truth, God gives them exactly what they want. A life apart from the God of creation. A life apart from the common sense truth that comes from the highest minded being. The perfect, righteous being. As God gives them over to what they want, their minds become perverse. They think thoughts they should never think. They become debased. I need you to listen to the rhetoric of the public square. I need you to listen to the ideologies of so many who claim to be experts, who want to lead the world down the path they want to go. The ideology is so do what thou wilt. It's so selfish. This is my life. This is my body. I can do what I want. Nobody can tell me what to do. It's so self-absorbed. There is no altruism. There is no good for the whole. It's just me and my identity and my politics. And everybody's got to bow down to what I want. Now one sweet sister of God with me. This, this selfishness, it comes from a mind debased because they got exactly what they wanted, a life without God. Not the God of the Bible. They might create gods for themselves, but they're idols. It's not the God of the Bible who we read about and repent of sin and turn to. No, oh, so many times we create gods that, that serve us and our selfish interests. Look quickly, verse 32. When you come to me, this is what I'm going to tell you. Why would God do that? Listen, God didn't do that. They did that. They suppressed the truth. So God gave them what they wanted. And guess what? They deserve what is coming. The Amalekites deserved the wrath of God. The Egyptians deserved the wrath of God. All the unrighteous who suppressed the truth have been turned over. And they deserve what is coming. What we're going to see ten times God patiently, lovingly, graciously goes to Pharaoh. Tells him exactly what's going to happen. If you do not repent, if you do not come my way, I'm going to do this. And what does Pharaoh do each time? Suppresses the truth. And so he gets what he deserves as a result. God is not on trial. Pharaoh is on trial and found guilty. God is perfect. He does no wrong. Everything he does is right. Happy Mother's Day. I'm having a good time. <laughs> Verse 3. So Moses goes back and does things the way that God... Notice he says the God of Hebrews here. And he adds the word please. Just like God told him to do. And then there is Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh, a man not led by the Spirit of God, but a man led by the course of this world, by the spirit of error. And he has an arsenal. This is not Pharaoh's first rodeo. He's been in leadership for a while. He's been in governance for a while. He's been treated as God 
for a while. He knows what to do with insurrection. He knows how to respond according to the course of this world. I mean, this is right out of the same play. But, you know, again, Satan is not that creative. His strategy has been the same for a long time. Here's Pharaoh's response to Moses there. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. King of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Verse 5. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. It was the first thing that Pharaoh does. He puts Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron have come in on the offensive. This is, look, we've met with God, and this is what he says. What does Pharaoh do? He, he, he makes them, he puts them on the defense. No longer are they on the offensive, now they're on the defense. Pharaoh says, what are, what are you guys even doing here? Why, why are you trying to come and mess up this, this beautiful system that I've created? And all of a sudden, I mean, Moses and Aaron have already said everything God said to say. But now they're on the defense. Uh, uh, uh. And then look what he does in verses 6 through 9. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmen. Now, now notice, this is after Moses and Aaron have left. He's been thinking about this. Again, this is not his first rodeo. He's like, how? This, is, this is, could be bad for my kingdom. How am I going to quench this? So that same day, he called his taskmasters together. And here's what he said. He said, oh, look down uh, at, uh, we're going to impose harsher restrictions on them. Uh, why are we going to do this? Look down at... Um, Look down at uh, verse 8. By the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry. What does he do? He flips the... First he puts Moses and Aaron on the defensive. Then he says, I'm going to bring down the hammer on these Israelites, these Hebrew people, because evidently they're idle. He flips the script. I'm not the bad guy. They're the bad guy. They must have lots. We must not be working them as hard as we should because they got all this time to listen to Moses and Aaron. They're planning on a workforce strike that's going to halt all the progress that Egypt is making. I'm not the bad guy. They're the bad guys. We've never seen that in our world. We live in the day the Bible speaks of when we call evil good and good evil. We've studied the book of Judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There is the spirit of truth and there is the spirit of error. The spirit of error always does what is right in their own eyes. And they even call evil good. And they call good evil. This is what Pharaoh's doing. Puts them on the defense and then tells them it's their fault. You guys are the ones in error. You have idleness. That's why you have time to listen to Moses and to Aaron. So the tab verses 10 through 13, the taskmasters put this in place. You've got to make Hey, Hebrews, you got to make the same amount of bricks every day. 
But we're not going to bring you the resources, the straw to make those bricks anymore. you got to go find that on your own. But your production better not go down. Obviously, they couldn't do this. So, when the end of the day came and they couldn't produce the same amount of bricks, they were beaten by the Egyptian taskmasters. And so these Israelite foremen come to Pharaoh and they're like, what are you doing? This is crazy. You've lost all common sense, Pharaoh. You expect this from us, but you, but, you, but you give us, no, you make it harder on us to perform. Look what he says in verse 16. These are the, the foremen of Israel speaking to Pharaoh. No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, you beat us when we can't, but the fault is in your own people. Fault is not on us. We didn't do anything wrong. We're asking to go worship our God for about a week, three days out, a couple days there, three days back. This is your fault. Don't turn this on us. This is you. People wonder why our, how our world has gotten where it is so quickly. It's amazing what a little thing like taking prayer out of school can do. It's amazing we want to talk to elementary kids about sexuality and gender issues, but we take something simple like prayer out. What idiot talks to an elementary school student anyway about sexuality? Nobody with any common sense. It's not time for that. This is your problem, Pharaoh. It's not ours. Pharaoh says, no, you are idle. You are idle. It's your fault. And I'm not going to relent. You've got to get your own straw and you've got to make the same number of bricks. Now go down to verse 21. Go to verse 20. So they come out of Pharaoh's knowing that they're in trouble. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink. Underline it. You have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The plot of Pharaoh works. He divides God's people. He turns the people whom God wants to deliver against those whom God has sent to deliver them. How does he do it? Puts them on the defense, flips the script, calls evil good and good evil, and then pits them against one another through hardship. Make it hard on them. Make it cost them. You have made us stink. Verse 22, Moses' response. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Underline that. God, Moses accuses God of doing evil. Why did you ever send me? First, now remember, everybody believes good times into chapter 4. Into chapter 5, Lord, you've done evil. Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You have not done what you said. 
Now, theologically, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've been in a good Bible preaching church, you know theologically up here in your brain that Scripture teaches God can't do evil. You know that in Him is light. There is no darkness. He can't come near darkness. You know from James 1, He he is perfect. Perfection, true perfection, can't even have an evil thought In him he cannot be tempted, nor can he tempt others. We know God is perfect, good, righteous, and holy. But I guarantee you, more of us than would like to admit we've had that conversation with God that Moses is having right here. I know I have. I've had some. Praise God, he's big enough and gracious enough to let us vent occasionally. But there have been times in my life where I have shook my fist at him and said, You have destroyed me. I have memorized every word you said. I have followed you. I have done what you have asked. And you have destroyed me. Because sometimes the sun goes down. And sometimes you're all alone. And sometimes even the people you're trying to help are the ones that have got knives in your back. Big idea. Don't think there will not be repercussions for following the Lord. We love when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing in the back of the room with their arms crossed going, nope, we ain't going to do that. But don't forget there's a fiery furnace coming. There are repercussions for standing in the spirit of truth for the glory of God, doing what he commands. Look at our Lord himself. No one is exempt. God in human flesh bore the shame of the cross, bore the weight of our sin upon his shoulders. None. Jesus said, they hated me. They're going to hate. The people who follow the course of this world, the people following the spirit of error, they don't like the spirit of truth. Of course they're going to fight against it. They're going to do everything they can to bring those who follow the Lord into the darkest moments. We see Moses in the darkest moments right now. But just remember... God, Moses shouldn't feel the way he feels. This is error on Moses' part. Why? Because God already told him this is exactly how this was going to go down. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. In the same way that God told Moses exactly what was going to happen before it happened. We have a New Testament. God has told us of glory that is coming. Which is why we can do something that unbelievers can't do. We can rejoice in our hardships and in our sufferings. Look at Romans chapter 5 quickly. I keep trying to shorten this and God keeps bringing new stuff. I don't know how I'm still so late. Chapter 5, listen to this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
and are at peace. Have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you find yourself this morning in a dark night of the soul, you think the sun's never going to rise again, hear the scripture. Weeping endures for a night, but joy does come in the morning. We know the end of the story. And you and I, you are not being punished by God. So many Christians come to me. Why would God do this? Why is he? Jesus took all punishment for your sin. The sins you've committed, the sins you are committing, and the sins you will commit in Christ through his blood. We are made right with God. There is no more conflict between he and us. There is peace. Through him, verse 2, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Even our sufferings we can rejoice in. Why? Because suffering and hardship have purpose. Moses at the end of chapter 5 is not the Moses God needs standing in front of the Red Sea with all of his questions. God's got to build Moses up. God's got to raise Moses. Or God's got to train Moses. God's got to build Moses' faith in his command and in his word. Hardship has purpose in our lives. Suffering and pain have purpose in our lives so that we can rejoice in suffering. Because what is the purpose of the suffering? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through not the spirit of error. Not through the course of this world but through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We know the end of this thing. A trumpet will sound and the sky will rend in two and Christ will descend and all wrongs will be made right and all the unrighteous will be judged and all those in Christ will receive glorified bodies. No pain, no disease, no sickness, no tears ever again. Perfection in eternity with God forever. This is our hope. And our sufferings help us endure. Building us. Giving us the character we need to be the Shadrachs, Meshachs, and Abednegoes. Who will walk into the fire knowing that God will be with us. Which increases our hope. I don't know if you've heard from the Fox Book of Martyrs, the story of Perpetua pregnant woman in a Roman prison. Her family's begging her to recant her faith. Have this baby and live. And Perpetua says, Perpetua, she had the hope that we need that comes from endurance, that comes from character through suffering. She faced the lions and was ripped apart in the arena for sport by the Romans. 
Because that's how strong her hope was. She said, it is my privilege to lay down my life for my Lord and King Jesus Christ. I don't want to get out of this. I want to face this in the glory of the name of Christ. Satan will try to put us on the defense. Satan will tell us we're actually wrong in believing God's word and that all the other options are more right and more good. Satan will try to divide us against our deliverer, our Christ. That's why there's so many heresies and so many cults that say Jesus isn't really God. Gnosticism is still real. Arianism is still real. May there be, may God raise up Athanasius in this room, both men and women who know the truth and stand for the truth and are not deceived by the wiles and the fiery darts of the enemy. But when the dust of battle recedes, we are left standing in the armor of our God, our hope ever increasing for the glory of that day that is coming where we see our Red Sea part the same way that Moses sees his Red Sea part. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we love you. We are thankful for your word. Our encouragement comes from your word and those who believe your word that you bring around us. Father, we always long to do this together, but if it should be your will for us to have to stand alone at some point, God, give us the strength Build us as you built Moses to be your men, your women. And that day, may we not be deceived by the spirit of error, but may your spirit be strong in us that we may continue to grow, to see your will come about in this world. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.